Thank you. And uh, what uh, wonderful songs we've been able to sing this evening, which uh, remind us of uh, everything that the Lord has done for us, of course, centered at the cross. So when I was uh, coming to the point of uh, bringing my education to a close, I must admit I didn't stay in education as long as I should have, and uh, I let my parents down quite badly on this particular point. But uh, I was aged 15, and I think you do it here in Canada. Uh, all people in sort of the last or a certain grade at school, you have to go away for work experience or go somewhere to work for one or two weeks. And I ended up working in a screen printing factory for two weeks. And uh, if you know what a screen printing factory is, it, it's where uh, things like electrical panels, uh, you put a silk screen over it, drag ink over it, and it leaves the ink goes through the screen where the letters and where the lines and the designs should be. And uh, I was told that uh, there had been a problem with a, a consignment that the factory had made of little clock faces. And they'd managed to get the hole where the hands come through in slightly the wrong place. So, of course, when they tried to put this, uh, the clock face in, it didn't work. So my job was to uh, put a, um, or to operate a press that cut out a tiny bit extra on the top of the, the hole so that it would make it in the right place. There was 10,000 of them. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen how much 10,000 is, and you've got to take each one out of the box and do this with uh, this sort of flywheel press thing. Everything was going well. I managed to complete a couple of thousand of them. And uh, then the guy who owned the factory came along and said, yeah, that's great. It's a shame you've put them in upside down. So you've taken the edge at the bottom off rather than the edge at the top off. So he wasn't happy. My work experience didn't go very well at all. And it didn't go very well for another reason. And the other reason was the fact that I had been brought up in a church. I was told uh, what we believed. My parents explained it. The pastor explained it week in, week out. I sat just like you guys. I sat there. We didn't have mobile phones and things to look at in those days. What we used to do was to add up the numbers on the, uh, on the hymn board and try and come up with the right answers. We used to do all sorts of different things to sit and to listen to that. Now, I can see already that some of you can relate to that. And uh, at least it sort of helped you with your arithmetic and so on. Occasionally, there was a pretty girl across the other side of the, uh, of, the, of the balcony, and you'd sort of keep an eye on what was going on there and who was sitting beside her and so on. But essentially, church didn't mean a great deal. And as I was thrown out into the situation of sort of like a work environment, I discovered that there's a lot of people in the world who think we're absolutely crazy who are absolutely not interested in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this guy came along and he said, no, you go to church, do you? And I was terrified, admitting to the fact that I went to church. And he said, tell me this. He said, why is it you Christians? You're always talking about death. Even, even your leader has died and you're still talking about him. And you just don't seem to be able to start talking about happy things, joyful things, things that make your heart you know, rejoice, going out and doing things, going places, and, 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 and your lives must be really miserable. And I had absolutely nothing to say to him at all. Nothing. And this morning, when Alan was talking to us, and he said, don't look very happy, you must be Baptists. It worried me. Because we've got so much to be happy about, so much to be joyful about, so much to encourage us, so much to give us all the hope in the world. 
And all too often we give the impression that all we're interested in is talking about depressing things, talking about the death of Jesus, talking about death and so on. And as you begin to read the Bible, there's some interesting things that come to your attention. Because you know what? The Bible does talk about death a lot. But there's very good reasons for that. And one of them is this, is the fact that we are born... Um, Enley's auntie is expecting a baby. I don't know when the baby's due, but there's a sadness about this in a very strange sort of way. And you might think, yeah, there, see, I've, you've, I've, I'm proven right. But you see, as, as babies, we're born into sinfulness. You know, you don't have to teach a child to sin. They're natural at it. And, and the Bible talks about this very clearly. So you see, it talks immediately from the fact that all of humanity is born under sin. In sin. And then it talks about the fact that as we live our lives, we have this propensity to sin and to upset other people and to do things that are wrong, to think things that are not good, to tell lies, to steal things, to be dishonest. None of us are taught to be dishonest. We just pick it up naturally. We're able to do it. But one of the wonderful things about God's Word is it says, yes, you're born in sin, and the Bible uses the comparison and says, you're born dead. Now, immediately, people think, he's scratching your head. What's he talking about? This baby is born dead. But this is what the Bible teaches. However, the Bible graciously, God's Word graciously explains something incredible to us, and that is that wherever there is death, there is life. And life has been made available to us if we come to faith and trust and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the subject that we're going to look at this evening um, very briefly. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you help us as we consider this in important um, ter terribly important subject. This is the gospel. This is, this is what it's about. And Father, I know that uh, some of us here this evening might be even somewhat skeptical. You've, uh, you're here. You're here under duress. You're here because somebody's dragged you along. You didn't really want to be here. In fact, right now, they're thinking about all the things they could be done, doing instead of sat here. And I pray, Father, for that person, for their heart, and I pray that this evening, everything would change and that they would begin to understand exactly what the gospel is and what it's all about. So Lord, help all of us to have ears that are open, eyes that are open, hearts that are open. I pray that there would be a strange warmth that would be felt within us this evening as suddenly we begin to understand all that you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you do have your Bible and uh, would like to turn uh, to 1 John. So 1 John is one of those uh, little letters towards the back of uh, your Bibles in chapter 4. In the text for this evening, verses 9 <coughs> to 10. John 4, 9 to 10. <coughs> Excuse me. I want you to listen carefully. 
I, I know that's a challenge sometimes, but this evening, let's give it a go. I was thinking sometimes that, uh, Lord, is it worth it? We preach the gospel, and nobody responds. But it is worth it because the gospel is the key to life. And as Randy prayed, you know, why, why is it? He might be crying over his, his dog, and he loved that dog. But we're talking about people here. And we shed tears for them. So verse 9 reads, uh, chapter 4, verse 9, simply says, In this, the love of God was manifested. That word means just shown, revealed. It was revealed toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Verse 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation to take the heat, the difficulties, the problems for our sins. What wonderful verses those are. And they contain within them the gospel narrative so clearly. So this evening, some of us in our lives, and perhaps this evening, there are people here for the very first time that you will have faced the reality of life. You sat here this evening, and deep down you actually know there's a problem. You've never told anyone about it, and you don't have any intention of telling anyone about it, because if you do that, it requires that you will have to be truthful and honest. You will have to allow people to begin to understand who you really are. But you know there's a problem. You know there's a difficulty. You know that this subject of sin is real. You don't want to admit it. Maybe there is sin in your life, and the last thing you want is for anybody else to know about it, but somebody does. God knows. He knows every detail, every seedy little detail of the life that you have led, the things that you're embarrassed about, the things that you don't want to tell anybody anything. You don't even want to drop a hint. But you have a God who knows you because he created you and he loves you. In fact, he loves you so much that he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you, for your sin. Some of us sat here this evening are perhaps not quite sure what it is that's causing us a problem. We know life's not how it should be. We recognize that life is something that should be wonderful. It should be something that we rejoice in, that we're happy in. And yet so often, it's the last thing we feel is joy in our lives. There's a problem. And again, I want to say to you that sin is one of these things that comes in and it causes division, it causes a break between us, and we discover that it causes us to be separated from God. Because God hates sin. And we're sinners. And just maybe you're going to be brave enough this evening to say, okay, but now... What do I do about it? How do I deal with this? 
How do I get rid of this huge burden that's on my back? You know Pilgrim's progress and the story of Christian is as he's walking along and he's carrying this weight and there are so many of us that under this burden that we carry, no wonder we're not happy, no wonder we're not joyful because every time we look up, we see the same problems bearing down on us. This evening I can tell you with certainty that the problem that we all face is our struggle with sin one way or another. I was talking to a young man this morning, don't name names. I don't know what the crime was, but he'd just finished a period of, of uh, being grounded. And I'm not interested in the details. But there's a problem. And all too often in our lives, the weight of sin just bears us down. But I want to tell you this evening that the fundamental problem lost sinners face isn't that you're just sick. Isn't just that you've, you know, you've got a bad headache and you need to take some, I was going to say paracetamol, but you don't know what paracetamol is, do you? It's, I think they call it Tylenol here, or something similar to that. Why can't you find any paracetamol in the jungle? Because the paracetamol... I didn't get that one from Joel Olstein, incidentally. <laughs> okay, I can, I can see that it took a while. <laughs> Some still haven't got it, I'll tell you later, okay? <laughs> it's not that you've got a headache and you need to take a tablet to deal with it. The fundamental problem that the sinner faces is so much more serious than that. It isn't just some malady that makes us feel unwell. Of course, sin does make us feel unwell because every time we face that circumstance and our mind races back to it, we regret it and we're sorry. The problem that we have is that the Bible tells us that before we have come to Jesus Christ, we are literally dead men and dead women and dead boys and girls walking. Yes, we're breathing. And yes, we're able to stand up. And yes, we can walk around. But the Bible says you're dead. So turn, please, to Ephesians. Um, wonderful, wonderful letter that the Paul wrote to uh, the church of Ephesus, a place where sin was rampant. Uh, sexual sin was the name of the game. It was the place where the temple of Diana was, uh, uh, was based. Temple prostitutes and all these dark, sordid, horrible things took place. And Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, and verse 2, he says this, and you, I want you to think about who the you is, it's you. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we 
all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So there it is again. The guy I spoke to when I was a, a teenager, he was right. The Bible does talk a great deal about death. But it has to, because death is the biggest problem that we face. Because without Christ, we are dead. This is what the Bible says. So when you sit here and you think to yourself, I've heard it all before and I'm really not interested, Pastor Sim, is there any chance you could talk about something else? The answer has to be no. Because this is your problem. This is the problem that we face. And on our Sunday evenings we come and we want to share the gospel because the gospel brings life and it breathes new life into us. But we have to come and start off by looking at our sin and the problems that we face. Dead in trespasses and sins. What does a dead man, a dead woman, a dead boy, a dead girl need? We need resurrection to new life. That's what our greatest need is. We need to be raised from the dead. Now, religion and reformation can give the impression that the corpse, the body, if you like, has been raised to new life. Now, what do I mean by this? We can look good on the outside, but the corpse, yes, it's walking around. It's even stood up at the front of the church delivering some sort of message. It, it, it's, it sat at the organ playing the organ so that the congregation can sing wonderful hymns that talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us. And the corpses can be singing the hymns and it can sound nice. But... It's cosmetic. It's the application of makeup. Now, um, I have come across some boys that wear makeup, mainly girls, but occasionally you meet. I, I, I used to do a lot of business with a, a Japanese chap, and he used to spend forever getting himself ready with eyeliner and all this stuff. I thought to myself, I'm so glad I wasn't born a woman <laughs> because I just wouldn't have the patience for it. Cosmetics look good on the outside. That's the whole point of it. But they can cover up, and they do cover up, the rotten deadness on the inside. And maybe for years you have been living your life in a cosmetic way to try and give the impression that you're saved, to try and give the impression that everything is okay between you and God. In fact, you're pretty happy with the way you've been living. And this last week was incredible. You managed to go a whole seven days without lying. Well, you think you did. And you think to yourself, just maybe I've cracked it. And I don't have to do anything else. I don't have to actually confess that I'm a sinner. Because I've managed to cover it. I've managed to cover over the surface. And it's dealt with. 
but cosmetics will never get you to heaven. It won't work. Only God can do this. Ephesians 2, the verses 4 and 5 that we've read a moment ago, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Aren't these words wonderful? Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. So we see instantly that it is with Christ. If you don't know Christ, I'm afraid you're lost. Because it is only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are able to have our sin dealt with, that we're able to one day stand before the Lord Jesus himself and he says, well done. He says, I know you. He says this, you are mine. Now Matthew 11 verse 5 indicates to us, I believe quite clearly, that our Lord Jesus raised many more people from the dead than perhaps are recorded for us in the New Testament. <laughs> the verse says, the blind see, hallelujah, the lame walk, praise God, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And then the verse goes on and says, and the dead are raised up. However, in the gospel records, there are only three accounts of resurrection that are described for us. And uh, if you think very quickly, you can come up with them. There's Jairus' daughter, Luke 8, uh, the son of the widow of Nain in Luke 7, and of course, our friend Lazarus, uh, a special friend of the Lord Jesus, which is uh, recorded for us in John chapter 11. And this evening, what I want us to do is to learn some basic truths about spiritual resurrection that brings salvation and new life to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ by looking at the three accounts that we have contained in the scriptures of physical resurrection. Now, there are the lessons that uh, we need to learn from these accounts. And the first one is just a quick observation. Jairus' daughter was only 12 years old, but she died. The widow's son was a young man, we're told. We're not given the precise uh, age, but we could surmise very accurately, probably late teens, early 20s. But he died. And we get the impression that Lazarus was an older man, but Lazarus died. So we're beginning to see the commonality that has taken place and that we see in these three accounts. And when you get home, you might like to look them up and read the scriptures through, but we haven't got time to do that this evening. So what does this tell us? Well, it tells us this, is that death is no respecter of age. And since death is a picture of sin in the Scriptures, these three accounts, these three stories, these three people that we're looking at here teach us that sin has slain the whole of humanity. Children are sinners. Young people are sinners. And adults are sinners. In fact, the scriptures remind us and make it very clear. Romans 8 verse 23. Can we say it together? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The word all means all people. But I also want you to note that in these three accounts, there's a time element involved here. Because when our Lord Jesus arrived at Jairus' house, the little girl had only just passed away. The young man at Nain was being carried out of the city. 
There was a funeral procession that was taking place, and the Jews usually buried their dead within 24 hours of death. And Lazarus, of course, we'd been told, had been in the grave for four days. And his sister said, be careful. Because of that. So a question for you. Which of these persons was the most dead? All the same. Are you a doctor? Do you have qualifications to support that? <laughs> Lee, thank you. Of course, Lee is absolutely correct. You see, there's no degrees of deadness. We're either alive or we're dead. However, and if anyone wants to take me up on this afterwards, that's fine. I, I'm pretty broad-backed, really. But we do see something in these three. And it's this. There are degrees of decay. Jairus' daughter had seen no decay. She had just died. And in fact, the scriptures are very, very clear. And it says, it looked as though she was just asleep. Decay would only have just started in the young man's body at Nain. But as for Lazarus, Martha warned that after four days in the tomb, the decay would have set in. And you wouldn't want to open the tomb. <clears throat> Here's the point. While all lost sinners, whether young or old, are spiritually dead, not all are in the same state of decay. Some sinners are prodigal sons and prodigal daughters, and there's a certain whiff about them. It smells like pigs. Others are rather pharisaical. In fact, when you get close to them, they actually smell quite nice. Their clothes are spotless and clean. And they walk down the street with a certain sort of confidence. They're respectable. They can be owners of businesses and you work for them. They're clean on the outside at any rate. But you discover that on the inside they're filled with corruption. Now if we had time we could read Matthew 23, 25 to 28, but if you just want to make a note of uh, those verses, please read them later. I'll try and put the notes again online uh, so, uh, so you can look these up uh, tomorrow. There was a pastor in a, in a uh, he'd been called of the Lord to pastor a big inner city church. And it was a strange church in some respects because it was built on sort of the line that roughly divided the city between the, 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 the old rundown area where all the down and outs live and the really posh sort of swanky area where, you know, the shops you had to pay to walk into the shop, let alone buy anything. 
And the church was right on the line. And he'd discovered after he'd started pastoring the church for a little while that if he walked out the door on this side, don't read into this, chaps, okay, then he found himself, you know, like you had to make sure your wallet was safe because someone would pinch it. There were people dealing drugs just down this side of the street. There were those who were stealing cars trying to work out how to get into them. There were those who were peddling drugs and all sorts. There were women of the night, prostitutes, who were looking for business. And that's what he discovered when he came out of the door on this side of the church. But when he came out on this side of the church, to his absolute amazement, everything was different. I don't look at Randy for any particular reason. But it was clean and it was tidy. The streets were kept clean. The shops were expensive. There was a boutique for dogs. Think about it for a moment. The cars were clean. The people smelt good. They looked good. On the posh side of the street of the church, the smell of decay was simply masked and covered by the smell of expensive cologne. What does the Bible tell us? Romans 6, 23, this time you'll know this verse as well. For the wages of sin is death. There it is. The lost sinner, and you can be here this evening who says, well, I'm not as bad as other people, is missing the point. Because the issue is not decay. It's death. That's the issue. What is the thing that a dead person needs the most? It's life. And again, the scriptures tell us that life can only come from Jesus Christ. Friends, spiritual life is a gift, just as physical life is a gift. Some of us nurture our lives. We eat well. We keep fit. Obviously, I'm not using myself as an example for this particular part of the message. But we cannot give life to someone who's dead. Only God can do that. And only through his dear son. But how does he do this? <clears throat> how does Jesus impart life to me? Well, as always, when we want answers to questions like this, we have to turn to the author. We have to turn to the Word of God. And here we discover something incredible. We discover that life is imparted through the Word. Let's read John 5, Gospel of John, chapter 5, 24. I'll read it. We've not time to turn. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word. And this evening, you are listening to his word right now. 
Which means that none of you have the excuse to say, well, God's never told me. God's never spoken to me. God's never explained. Jesus has never told me what it's all about. Jesus has never explained. Because he says, my word, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Isn't that exciting? Let me see it on your faces. I want to say shout hallelujah, praise the Lord. Isn't this tremendous? Notice that in each of the resurrection narratives, and as I say, read them at home, Jesus spoke to the dead person. The little girl, arise, Luke 8, 54. Little girl, arise. Our Lord simply said to her. The young man, he, I say to you, arise, Luke 7, 14. Lazarus, come forth. John eleven forty three. And in each case, the living word, spoken with divine authority, gave the person life. Friends, the Word of God possesses life. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is living and powerful. 1 Peter 1.23 Those who received that Word by faith have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God which lives and abides forever. Even though they are dead in trespasses and sin, lost sinners can hear the voice of the Son of God as the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to declare their need and wait for it and the grace of God that meets their need. So Romans ten seventeen. so then by faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Are you listening? This is God speaking to you. But you have to hear. Now what does a dead person do when they are raised to life again? Do they lie still and hope no one notices? No. Jairus' daughter got up and walked around and did what any other 12-year-old girl would have done. She asks for food. Feed me. The young man gave evidence of his new life by sitting up and speaking at Nain. And Lazarus gave proof that he was alive by shuffling out of the entrance of the tomb. Remember, he was wrapped up in all those clothes. I've said this before. He's like a mummy, so he's walking something like this as he comes out. Yes, Lord, I'm here. And what does Jesus say to the, the guys around? They say, go on, get his clothes off, get the, get the grave clothes removed. Why? So he can walk, so he can show his excitement, so he can say, I'm alive. You see, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, you'll want to show it to your friends, to people around us, because you have been raised to life. And when you meet people and they are miserable and they are sad, you've got to ask yourself the question, do you know the Savior? Have you met face to face with Jesus who loves you, died for you, has conquered death? 
given you life. Perhaps the Apostle Paul had Lazarus in mind when he told the Ephesian believers to put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. People who have been resurrected through faith in Jesus Christ will want to put off the grave clothes and they'll want to put on the grace clothes. What a lovely picture that is. And those clothes, of course, identify us as being the children of God. I was going to read uh, Colossians 3, uh, 9 to 10, and then verse 12. But again, um, time has uh, caught up with us. And uh, when the notes go out, look these verses up. Lastly, Jesus Christ does not simply have life and give life. What does God's word tell us about Jesus? It tells us that he is life. Jesus said that nobody else could ever say, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. He also said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Again, I am the life. The apostle John wrote, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested, revealed, shown, displayed to us when John 1 John 1 verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Friends, this is why it is absolutely essential for sinners to trust in Jesus Christ and receive him into their hearts, because it is only he, it is only through him that you can have eternal life. There is no other option. You can't buy your way to heaven. Many people try. You can't be good enough to get to heaven. Many, many, many people try to that. You can try all sorts of other options, other gods, other religions. The only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. So you see, Christians are exclusive because we know the answer. One John five eleven to twelve, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life, and what does the verse go on to say? He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Friends, is there any part of that verse that you don't understand? Is there? If you don't have Jesus, you don't have eternal life. The verse goes on and says, he who has the Son has life. Sorry, I, I just repeat that part. He who does not have the Son does not have life. What a paradox. 
Jesus died that we might have life. But how tragic it is that this life is available to all who will receive Christ. And yet so few repent of their sin and turn to Him and place their trust, their belief, and their hope in Him. Friends, it's true that churches have not been great at delivering the message. As believers, we haven't been particularly good. But this evening, you can't walk out and say you haven't understood or been told. You've heard God speak. Most of the message this evening has been simply quoting Scripture. Not my words, His words. So you don't have to say, not interested what Pastor Sin has to say. What you're really saying is, I'm not interested what the God who created the universe has to say. I'm not interested in what the God who flung stars into space with his hands, who breathed life into your body, has to say. Are you prepared to oppose the God who created the universe and turn your back on him? With all my heart, I pray that this evening will be the time that you will stop and realize your need of salvation and call out to him who promises to answer you. Not one person in all of the history of the world who called for salvation was turned away. And God said, I'm sorry, I'm not interested in you. So please, why did Jesus die on the cross? Because the series of the messages on Sunday evening, right the way up to Easter, is about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus die on the cross? He died on the cross that we might live through him. Because he is the life. Thank you for listening so well. And I pray if anybody...